You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 22, airing in February 2012. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And I'm Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, the last episode, number 21, we had Esther from Las Vegas on with a great perspective on really the the in-the-trenches work she's doing to end human trafficking. And I'm so glad today that we have another guest with us who is also going to be part of the conference coming up here in March that the Global Center for Women and Justice is hosting. And I know she has a fantastic perspective as well and someone that is just a a very inspiring person. So I'm so glad that we have her with us today. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want to see her, if you go to gcwj.vanguard.edu and click on the conference and the gala button, you will see a lovely picture of my wonderful friend, Rhonda Shortino, who is also our gala speaker the night before our conference begins on March 2nd. Our conference to stand together to end the exploitation of girls. And Rhonda brings from her expertise a wealth of knowledge, experience, and personal passion for kids in our child welfare system. So the interesting um, connection between what Esther presented to us last week, our last podcast on the um, kids who are in the juvenile delinquency system, they're in detention, they are going to court. Um, Rhonda comes from the other extreme of kids with problems that are in our child welfare system. And we've already identified that bridging that gap is really important. We want to intervene before the kids become victims. And as you listen to Rhonda and Sandy discuss uh, the conference today and some of the issues that both of them have expertise on in ending human trafficking and and particularly the exploitation of girls, which is the focus of the conference, you'll definitely want to check out the conference website and give your advanced registration so you can join us in March, March 2nd and 3rd here in Costa Mesa, California. For those of you who are in colder climates, it's nice and warm here in March. And of course, that website is gcwj.vanguard.edu. And of course, you can always call us with feedback, 714-966-6361. So, Rhonda Shortino, welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you do. I love what the center does. I love that Vanguard has the Global Center for Women and Justice, and it's such, a, it's such an honor to be included here today. So let's dig right into this, and I want our listeners to understand the frame of reference that you bring to this. How old were you when you first became a ward of the court? Uh, I was six months old. Um, You Mm. know, I I don't have any memory of the day that my mother left, but uh, she left me with a neighbor and asked the neighbor to babysit while she went shopping, but she didn't go shopping. Her clothes were packed and the car was loaded and she actually moved out of state. And so for 16 years, 
you were in a place where you often felt very alone. Um, you experienced abuse. You um, at at some point, I think I remember you talking about being homeless. Can you give us just um, a really short version of of what that means? Yes. Uh, I was, uh, in those days, this was in the early 60s, if, uh, if a social worker could connect you with a family member, they were done. So, you know, they, che- they found my maternal grandparents and checked the box and basically walked away. And uh, those folks were, uh, you know, it wasn't a great environment, hence the reason that my mother had left as a teenager my grandfather was mentally ill, my grandmother was an addict, and we lived in a house, really more like a shack, uh, about the size of a garage that didn't have working plumbing and uh, you know, certainly didn't have heat or air conditioning or any of that. So it was an interesting thing to grow up in Southern California um, aware of affluence, but being so very disconnected from it. And uh, so my grandfather was very, very abusive. My grandmother was as well. Uh, she was the one who threw a skillet of hot oil on me to discipline me when I was four years old. Mm. Uh, and uh, I would be put out of the house in the morning. My earliest recollections were, you know, being put out of the house in the morning and, uh, and not allowed back in until much, much later. And the neighborhood we lived in was... Um, Oh, my goodness, it was a pretty scary area. There was um, a a gang there, actually a lot of gang activity. Uh, There was, let's see, I think three doors down was what we called the Hells Angels house. That was where the Hells Angels, uh, you know, made their local headquarters. So, you know, it it was a very scary environment. And when I hear about some of the girls who have been trafficked, and, uh, and, and brought into just the most heinous environment. I just almost can't think of anything worse. I, I think of how that could so easily have been me. And, and that is part of what drives me uh, to, to try to do something. And when I met you, Sandy, I just, you know, I've told you, you're, you lit my hair on fire about this <laughs> issue because I've, I've felt like I was an advocate, a child advocate, kind of a crusader about uh, stopping child abuse for many, many years. I've, I feel like I've spent my whole life one way or the other in the child welfare, in and around the child welfare system, but I hadn't really connected the dots until I met you that the only thing worse than child abuse is profiting from the abuse of children. And when you helped me understand that trafficking is a business and that the traffickers consider children reusable uh, assets, I, I just, you know, suddenly uh, something fired off in my brain. The dots were connected, my hair lit on fire, and now I just am consumed with the feeling of wanting to do something about it. So now I'm kind of trying to back up and, and do what you teach in understanding the issues, gathering the information. So I love that um, you know you and the, your Global Center for Women and Justice are such a great resource uh, 
for these issues and, and uh, sharing of information and best practices and so on. Well, when, when we hosted the um, Human Trafficking Summit in the fall with judges and prosecutors and victim advocates on this issue at Vanguard, one of the gaps that they identified was a gap between um, communication and collaboration from the child welfare perspective and the juvenile justice perspective. And so because of your um, personal experience and history of significant advocacy, I, I feel like bringing Esther and Rhonda into the same room, and if you didn't listen to the podcast last, last time, go back and listen to it. Um, it's, it's like two worlds colliding, and they have all of the same kids. We just right. have to figure out how to work together, how to collaborate, how to intervene before we take a child who's already been abused and see that child become um, an exploited child that someone is selling as a business, as you, as you so aptly put it. So when I met you, I also, I, my hair was not on fire. I'm afraid of fire. But I, my, um, I was inspired because you wrote a book, and the title of that book um, just listening to the title, when I talk to people who have had personal experiences that they feel have held them back, um, they're inspired just hearing the title. The title is Succeed Because of What You've Been Through. And when I hear you tell your story, and this is where community collaboration is so important, and we talked about court-appointed special advocate volunteers. We we have all kinds of wonderful um, opportunities for community engagement. And in your life, Rhonda, tell me um, at least two examples of when someone in the community made a difference that changed your trajectory. Oh my goodness, I I have uh, I have a handful of those. Probably the the first most meaningful is with two people who I can't even name. Wow. There was there was a time when the social worker did show up and uh, found that I I think it was a time when she came by and I had two black eyes. And I was pulled from my grandparents' home and placed in the home of a couple who were foster parents. I was there for a very, very short period of time. But it was long enough for me to take notice of the fact that they didn't yell at each other. They didn't hit one another. Uh, the the one who was loudest and biggest didn't didn't necessarily win <laughs> any conflict. Mm. They had plenty to eat, and I ate them out of house and home. I do recall that, and they had a clean house. And I'd never ever seen a clean floor. I'd never experienced. I didn't know such a thing existed. So, in just being who these people were. They influenced me. The most important thing they did, Sandy, was that they took me to church. Oh. And that's the very reason that I was pulled from their home. My, my grandfather filed a complaint. He, he actually uh, parked. I think he had been following them. Because when I left, the child support left. Uh, and, and their uh, welfare so, check. So you were a means of income for... I was a means of oh, income okay. for them. 
So they wanted me back into their home because money followed me. It wasn't mm. very much money, but uh, we lived on a little bit over $300 a month. And uh, it was a big deal when a hundred and I think it was almost 150 of it uh, left. Mm. So they wanted me back. So my grandfather parked catty corner from the church, and I remember coming out of that church singing and, you know, waving my little picture of Jesus that I'd colored or whatever it was, and I made eye contact with that man. Mm. And I knew I was in trouble. And he filed a complaint the very next day. That was shortly after Madeline Murray O'Hare got prayer taken out of the uh, schools, and so it was a very sensitive issue. And so I was pulled from that home, and I never saw those people again. But they planted a seed in me that took root. Mm. Because I now knew that there were people who lived very differently. And I liked that I could go to sleep there and I could relax. And it was the very first time in my life that I had not been hypervigilant. Wow. And, and uh, you know, always kind of sleeping with one eye open, you know. So that was one. The second was a high school teacher when I was 14 years old who took an interest in me. And I hadn't realized until this woman made eye contact with me and spoke to me exactly the same way as she spoke to every other kid in the classroom. I hadn't realized that uh, other people did not make eye contact. Wow. I was filthy. We didn't have working plumbing, which means we didn't have a shower. There wasn't even a shower in the house. The house was built in the late 1800s, and, and uh, so I, I was dirty all the time. My clothes were dirty. The, my grandparents both smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. We didn't always have food, but we always had cigarettes and booze. And so I smelled, and, uh, you know, I was dirty, and I, I was hard to look at. And here this teacher looked at me, and then she did something that completely changed my life, which was to ask my opinion about something. And I realized that no one had ever asked my opinion. Because when you're unwanted, no one cares what your favorite dinner is or what your favorite class is or what you dislike about school or your favorite anything. So for this woman to just ask my opinion, what she did that day, 36 years ago, that I can remember like it was this morning, was she gave me my dignity. Mm. And, uh, and she, she taught me by her living uh, work ethic and, and the way that uh, people appropriately conduct themselves. When she saw value in me, I began to say, see value in myself. And consequently, I was inspired to make better choices. So while my friends in the old neighborhood were joining gangs and, uh, you know, making babies, at, you know, 13, 14 years old and, uh, you know, and smoking dope and all that stuff. I was working at the high school where I attended uh, as a result of this teacher's help. And I was becoming the fastest typist there at Upland High School. And I was learning shorthand and mm -hmm. all the skills that would enable me to get a job. Because of one teacher. Because of one teacher. And so when I went out to get that job, I was hired. I was, you know, 15 years old. I couldn't 
spell the word insurance, much less have any understanding of what it was whatsoever. But the, So the third person, and then I'll stop. There have been more, but the third person who influenced my life was uh, a, a one-man insurance broker office. Uh, he wanted some part-time help, and he hired a 15-year-old kid that, that knew nothing. Uh, but I was willing to work, and I was willing to learn, and he hired me and, and gave me my first job in insurance. And I've been in the insurance industry uh, ever since. And I'm, I'm so grateful to him and to, to all the others who have, you know, one, one sort of uh, hand at a time sort of lifted me up to a higher level. And your life story is a wonderful example of what we're talking about here about community engagement. People don't need to quit their jobs and go to Las Vegas and work for Esther um, to help restore victims. They can work in their own communities and find a place where a child is in need of attention, of understanding that they have personal dignity, that they have an opinion, that they have an opportunity to learn skills that will make them employable. Um, one person along the way changes everything. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and I did, you know, I my personal belief system um, tells me that. Uh, there's a God who positions us in, in places where we can use our own uh, unique set of skills and talents and abilities, strengths, our, even our quirky little you know, elements of our personality to influence the lives of others in a positive way. So you're right. I, I, for many, many years in working with child welfare organizations, everybody in my life was a psychologist or an MSW uh, you know, mass, having their master's degree in social work, licensed marriage and family therapist, and so on and so forth. So they all had all these great initials after their names. And I did not. And uh, so I spent a lot of years thinking, oh, you know, if, if only I had the right degree, if only I, um, you know, had, had had a more traditional educational experience. And, and, and so what I realize now, though, looking back, is that, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't my role to, to be a social worker or to be a psychologist, but my role um, was that I was perfectly suited and matched to my role, mm -hmm. which was understanding how to properly protect and defend the people who provide the direct care to kids. You know, Rhonda, it's, it's such an important point what you're saying. And I, to piggyback on what Sandy just mentioned a moment ago of us really finding the gifts that God's given us to use in the right way. And I think there is often this belief and even bias amongst those of us who want to go out and help that we have to go somewhere or we have to fly somewhere to help out people. And there's so many needs right in front of us. And if we can tap into the gifts we've already been given and look for the opportunities right in front of us. There's so much good we can do. And, and boy, you're such a wonderful example of in your life of how some wonderful people have done that for you. And boy, Sandy, I think that there's a lot I know I can do and, and we can do as an organization to be able to address those needs right in front of us. Well, here's what Rhonda did for me, Dave. Um, after this 
summit and I'm listening to all these juvenile um, delinquency people talk about they, they need to get connected to child welfare. Mm-hmm. Well, I said that to Rhonda. Now, Rhonda, tell us who are all the people that you have recruited, literally dragging um, to participate in our conference that represent the other side before these kids have been commercially sexually exploited. Who's coming? Oh, oh my gosh. Well, um, so many people, but the first person that comes to mind is Dr. Jeremy Cajomban. He's the CEO of Children's Village in New York. If they're not the largest child welfare organization in the state of New York, they have to be one of the top two or three. What's most impressive, though, about Jeremy is that I knew him 20 years ago when he was a young social worker with a pager. Yeah, I said pager on his belt. You may need to define that for (laughs) some of our listeners. What is that? Right, right. (laughs) You know, before cell phones, there were these little machines that we clipped to our belts and they would go off if someone called us. And Jeremy really just grabbed my heart. Here he was, young husband, young father. He had his own life. He had, you know, lots of responsibility on his job. But he gave kids and their dysfunctional families his personal pager number and said, call me 24 hours a day. Uh, He would say to children, okay, if mommy takes you to the bar and locks you in the car outside of the bar so she can go in, get to a phone and call me and I'll come get you. Mm. And, And, you know, I remember sitting in that first meeting with him and, and being so impressed that this guy didn't just go from eight to five and then compartmentalize. And I'm not trying to disrespect people who do compartmentalize and, and put it away and go home to their families. I understand that there has to be balance. But, but this man touched my heart, and he's mm. been touching my heart and the hearts of, of uh, the kids within his programs, uh, thousands of them for all these years. So he, so he's one that's coming. Another one is Amelia Frank Meyer. She's the CEO of a new family services. Oh, and uh, Amelia has come up with a replacement therapy for physical restraint. This is so critical because what happens with kids who have been sexually molested and kids who have been trafficked is that you know, they, they go into the general population of, of kids in child welfare who, you know, have been abused and abandoned and neglected. But, but sexual molestation and sexual trafficking is, just requires special expertise. So when a kid mm-hmm. who's gone through that is in the general population and they're typically in a behavioral modification program, which means there are rules and if they don't follow the rules, then they're demoted or, you know, points are taken away and they're humiliated in front of their peers by those things. And so when they, when they really act out, they get physically restrained mm-hmm. and they get medicated. So there's physical restraints and there's pharmaceutical restraints. Well, what did the traffickers do? They mm-hmm. arranged for these kids to be restrained in physical ways against their will and with drugs and and medicated right to to comply with what the trafficker and the customers want them to do 
or to make them feel better about, you know, how smarmy they feel after they've done the thing that they never wanted to do. And so we're doing essentially the same thing to these kids. Mm. So Amelia has proven that we can stop doing that and instead address their grief and their loss Mm. and the reactions that they're having to the grief and the loss, which are totally normal reactions. If you or I or any, you know, perfectly well-adjusted person experienced what these kids have experienced, we would act in similar ways. And I think me, I'd probably act worse. Well, so, I can't wait to to have Amelia here. And and the the next one I know you're going to say, I want to pre preface that with reminding people of what Esther said last week or last podcast about trauma bonding and the role of trauma in what's happening psychologically. So tell us who's going to talk about that. Oh, I, are you referring to Tina Feigl? Yes, yes. I'm so excited yeah. about having her. Tina has a wonderful, very practical program for bonding with kids and, and for deepening relationships. And, and, uh, and it's backed by wonderful uh, research that's been done on the pathways between the heart and the brain and creating new neuropathways through verbal and, and uh, you know, facial and body communication uh, with a kid. And, and it really comes down to that. Here's where I don't have all those initials behind my name, but when it's, when it's brought down to my level, a practical level, I can understand it. And that's what Tina does. She brings the whole thing from theory and concept to something that anybody, whether it's somebody who signed up to be a mentor or a court-appointed special advocate or somebody who's participating in the Safe Families Plus program where it's a family who's taking in a kid who's been rescued from trafficking and they don't have all the right degrees and initials and all that stuff, but they care. And, and so Tina teaches ways that we can connect and bond and add value to that child's life and get them to see the value in themselves. We are going to have a great opportunity to seriously study those issues so that we know what to say and what to do with these kinds of participants in our conference, Rhonda. And you have been so instrumental in bringing them to the table with us. Um, you just mentioned Safe Families. Could you tell us just a little bit more about what that is? Oh, yes. The Safe Families program was actually started by a church in Illinois, and it's nationwide now. And what they do is, you know, they're kind of like uh, a preventative um, approach to avoiding foster care. So, for example, the original Safe Families concept was if, if a, a family was at risk of, of having their children taken away, um, you know, maybe it's because they've lost their jobs and now they've lost their home, they're homeless and, you know, and they're on the streets. Oftentimes kids are removed just because the family can't, can't care for them properly. Uh, and so this was an idea of a, a pastor and a group of people in a church to say, okay, if, if we have 
stable homes and families, could we take a child in for a period of time while the parents get on their feet and keep the kid in school and make sure the kid, you know, has good food and a place to sleep and is safe. And uh, and now, though, and that's that's gone very well. I don't know how many safe families there are in the United States off the top of my head, but there are many, many, many people who are doing this amazing work and keeping families together. In fact, many of the families have actually taken, you know, the single mom and her kids in, and in so doing are teaching the whole family by the way they behave. They're teaching them how to interact with one another and improving the quality of their lives and in many cases um, breaking the cycle of abuse and, and neglect and so on. So we Same go... Family- we I'm go sorry? full circle then back to uh, Rhonda when you were in a family that was safe and you could sleep at night and you could eat when you were hungry. Exactly. And what exactly. a change it made for you. Our time oh. is gone. I can't believe this. But if you want to hear more of Rhonda's amazing stories, you won't want to miss our gala on March 1st. And you will want to come to the table with these great teachers who will help equip us as a community to engage in responsible and sustainable ways in ending the exploitation of our children right here in our own country and in our own backyard. If you have some questions, because we can have Rhonda back later, uh, for Rhonda, please call us. Dave, that number is 714-966-6361. And of course, our feedback email is gcwj at vanguard.edu. And uh, Sandy, I've really been inspired listening to Rhonda, listening to Esther on our last show. And uh, and we're just scratching the surface on the types of things this that are going to happen from the, at the conference this year. And I really am excited to see just all these wonderful um, caring minds and hearts come together and help us all to study the issues so we can all learn and grow from it in, in some really positive ways. And Rhonda, um, thank you for, for giving us your time today, and I can't wait to see you on March 1st. Uh, thank you for having me, and I can't wait to see the gathering of, of people who care about these issues on March 1st, so it's exciting. Thank you for doing that. Well, Sandy, that's going to do it just for our time today. And we're so glad to have welcomed Rhonda Shortino to join us today. And again, she's going to be the headliner for the gala on March 1st. And then, of course, the conference itself is going to be on March 2nd and 3rd. To register, go to gcwj.vanguard.edu. And in the meantime, Sandy, I'll see you in two weeks for our next show. All right. Thanks, everybody. And have a great week out there. 